Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Last week we considered Paul's warning that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The threats to our Christian faith are real and they're constant. In fact, some of the more subtle threats are less obvious. Uh, there are certain things that we react to and respond to as unchristian and if we hear someone curse or do something nasty or all, we, we react to that. We, we recognize that usually as anti-Christian or somebody openly attacks the Christian faith. But it's actually the more subtle threats that are around us that are probably the more dangerous, the ones we've grown used to, the ones that, we, that don't shake us up and offend us, uh, that are still nevertheless undermining our faith. They're subtle. That's the craftiness and the cunning and the deceitful scheming that's going on that the devil is using to try to undermine our faith. I, you know, we could talk about with children certain movies or books, but let's say movies that we'd say we wouldn't let a child watch that because of the sex or violence or foul language and those kinds of things, and that's good. We shouldn't. But we'll plop them down in front of a Disney movie or a cartoon that is just as subtly undermining the Christian faith and a, and a Christian worldview and think nothing of it because it's a cartoon and it's Disney and, and therefore it must not be a problem. Well, the same thing happens to us as adults. The Apostle John captures this same idea when he writes in 1 John 5, 19 and 20, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway, the influence of the wicked one. And we, so he says, we know that. We know the whole world is under the sway and influence of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. There is this contrast between those who are under the sway of the devil, the influence of the devil, and those of us who understand what's going on. And we are under the influence and sway of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Peter also writes in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, 
Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We, like children, tend to naively scroll through life, not perceiving the dangers that are lurking at every turn. Thus, the need to grow up, the need to mature, both personally and corporately. Without the proper foundation, we will fall apart at the next turn. We won't be ready. We won't be equipped. Jesus instructed us that we were to build our lives upon his word. And we, again, sit here week after week. Hopefully some of that word is soaking in and becoming part of us. But a much more earnest effort to have that word central, critical, at the very forefront of our lives is essential. Jesus said, whoever comes to me... And here's my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, and the implication of course is floods will arise, and the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. Now we must remember that God's word is not only truth, but that its goal is always love. That is, it always seeks the good of its objects. The summary of all his word concerns what? Loving God and loving our neighbors. And so the truth is for our good. Sin is always the challenge of God's word. and It always brings death. It always brings some kind of separation. It's replacing his word with our word. when we think we know better than God, when we call good evil or evil good, then things always go badly. But then again, that's the history of mankind. The gospel, of course, is the reversal of this. It's a reversal that is, uh, is there to establish the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's the boss. He's the king. He gets to tell us, what to do and what to think and how to live. The solution to all of your problems is really quite simple. So when someone says, I'm struggling with this or that sin, but they do not earnestly go to God's Word and seek to be equipped to overcome that sin, then I question whether they are really struggling at all. Sometimes we just like to be children. I've never had anyone tell me that they've done everything God said to do, but they can't they still don't seem to make any progress. Now, Paul says here that we're to speak the truth in love, and so I want to say something about the relationship of truth and love. Truth and love go hand in hand. In fact, Truth is not really fully true if love is not its object. Love isn't love if it's not grounded in the truth. On the flip side, truth minus love can be twisted. It can be used. The truth can be used for very destructive purposes. It can be used to hurt. It can be used to embarrass. It can be used to gossip. It can be used to ruin other people. Well, I was just telling the truth. No, that isn't what you were just doing. 
You were taking the truth and using it not for the good of others. So, for example, when Paul later in this chapter, we'll get to this, talks about let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. None, but only words that are good and necessary for edification, for building up, for improving the situation. Now, does that mean you can never say a hard word or a corrective word or a rebuke? Of course that's not what it means. Sometimes hard hard words are needed and correction is needed. And those can hurt, but the object is to build up, to do good. Which means you can also take words, even true words, and use them to tear down. So, stripped of love, truth becomes a hammer. Well, I was just telling the truth. Again, no. Oftentimes that's not just what's going on. Love seeks the good of its object. And, of course, it cannot be based on a lie. As 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, Love does, no, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. When, in the name of love, we indulge bad behavior, which, of course, is contrary to truth, then we have perverted love into a sentimental substitute for real love. We can call it love, but it's not love anymore. Thus, the world is always trying to water down both truth and love, to to redefine them to suit themselves. Unfortunately, the church, often being immature like children, have have bought into these notions, which has led to an impotent, spineless church that has nothing to say and really has no good news at all. The world has lectured us, for example, on what it means to be loving. According to them, if we love people, we will approve of whatever they desire. Who are we to judge others? Acceptance and approval is the only loving thing to do, right? Your chief end is to be nice and to make others feel good about themselves. We must tolerate anything and everything. What someone believes, you see, is relatively unimportant. Doctrine, especially precise doctrine, is to be avoided and diminished. Being open-minded and tolerant of other opinions is the greatest virtue. Of course, if all views are equal, then no one can pass judgment on anything or anyone And this has become the resounding theme of our current culture with human sexuality at its center. You see, the truth does not always make me feel good. It may not make me feel good in the moment, but it does ultimately make me feel good because it seeks my good. Some of you have heard this before, but I'm going to read C.S. Lewis, I think, captured this idea when he wrote this. He said, when I was a child, I often had a toothache, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and would let me go to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt that she would give me the aspirin 
But I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting quite a bit more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from my pain, but I could not get that without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. And they would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took a mile. Now, if I put it now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentist. If you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of uh, some particular sin, which they're ashamed of, or which is obnoxious, or, or, or which is obviously spoiling daily life. Well, he will cure it, all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you ask, but if once you call him in, he will give you the full treatment. That is why he warned people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake, he says, if you let me, I will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, that's what you're in for. Nothing less or other than that. This I can do and will do, but I will not do anything less. A phony love, a cheap love, a substitute love stops short of the truth And therefore, in the end, it is destructive. See, real God-defined love wins. The so-called love of our age is phony and sentimental and shallow. It not only doesn't win, it kills. It's a slogan to promote sin. And that's why Paul is insistent that we speak the truth in love. And let me just make a a comment. I thought about this and added it to my notes here this morning. Many of us, many people, really don't want to have truth spoken to them. That's why Paul's going to talk about those who gather, those they have itching ears. They want to gather people to tell them what they want to hear. They don't want to hear the truth. And we've seen it here at church where people come and they really don't want you messing in their lives. We don't want you talking to us. We don't want you to tell us anything. Just as long as I can sit here and you leave me alone and don't butt in. We don't want a church that butts in. We don't want a church that tells us anything. We want to come and go as we please. And if you'll leave us alone, everything will be fine. But the minute you get involved, the minute you speak the truth into our lives, that's where we draw the line. We don't, we don't, well, what that means is, since the church is the body of Christ, and the pillar and ground of the truth, and the, and the deliverer of God's word, what you're saying is, when you say that, or when someone says that, is, I don't want Jesus speaking truth into my life. He can lay it all out there, and I'll come by and pick the parts I want. I'll do the garage sale thing. I'll do the smorgasbord. I'll pick out the parts I like, but I don't want anything put on my plate that I don't like. So, you know, as parents, when we say, you're, you know, I'm going to only, I, I knew a, a kid up in Idaho when I first took Aaron to school up there in a family, and he was seven years old, and the only thing he ate ever were apples and peanut butter. You know why? 
Because that's his parents let him make the decision. That's all he liked. And he didn't want anything else. And so rather than make him unhappy, they were willing to let him make all those decisions for himself. And there's many people in the church that way. They like peanut butter, and they like apples, or they like some other things. But we don't want the other parts. The other parts are disruptive. They make me unhappy. They make me turn up my nose. But you see, God's Word, God's law is truth, and that's the standard. He does know what's good for us. Law, you see, is foundational to any society. A lawless society is not a loving place. We might ask the question, what would you have to do first if you undertook to organize a new club? Even among children, the answer is obvious. We need some rules. We need some bylaws. It's so essential and so elementary that we really, it can go almost without saying, it's the rules of the laws that mark the structure or the skeleton of any society of people. And so at our house, we have rules. This is how we love each other. We don't talk this way. We pick up after ourselves. We say thank you. There's so many things there, if, if it's a loving place, that restrain us, that put limits on our selfishness, that cause us to, to sacrifice, which is what love is, to say no to me and yes to you. And so lawless families or societies are not happy places. The purpose of law is to preserve the existence and identity of the group as a whole. The law sets forth terms that every individual must obey for the sake of the whole body. And so the end and the purpose of the law in this world is to protect society as a whole. It's about justice. It's about love. And so the law instructs us in the truth, how to love God and how to love our neighbors. In addition, the law protects the innocent from evil. Clearly, the lawgiver in any case is the highest authority for any people. And so the origin of law, whatever law you have, the origin of that law is God. That's its God. And so the final authority for our law is the law of the triune God, as revealed in Scripture. And since we're a people under God's law, then we are a people under God, and therefore we are God's people. That's what defines us. When the law of God gets replaced by our own words and ideas, we get the results that we see today. There's much talk about love without the substance of law, a contentless love. But without law, without truth, there is no love. Chaos and lawlessness are the products of a so-called love without law. Love isn't a substitute or a replacement for law. There's never been more talk about love and at the same time more lawlessness than in our own day. And I might add, no more hatefulness than in our own day. Jesus said, and because, of, because lawlessness will abound, what's the result? The love of many will grow cold. 
When God's law is diminished, truth is diminished, and love is diminished. But you see, love is the fulfillment of the law. So let me emphasize the point. Not everything that is called love is really love. We love our clothes and certain TV programs or music or football. We think of love as a feeling or as romance. But how often does the word obedience come to mind when we think of love? Obedience to God's perfect law produces the fruit of love. Love is acting in such a way so as to serve and benefit God and our neighbor. It's ultimately the way we love ourselves. Consider parents and their children. Which parent loves their child? The one that allows the child to do whatever he or she pleases with no restraints? Or the parent who sets limits and gives instruction and has high expectations and disciplines their child? Which child loves their parent? The child that disregards the parent's instructions and limits? Or the child that respectfully complies with their parent's directives? The Bible connects the concept of love, law, and obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. You cannot love without law. Romans 3 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in the same, in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, it's the law that gives definition and meaning to the word love. Without law, love is simply some fuzzy, undefined emotion with no substance. We love God, we love our families, our neighbors, and our enemies when we behave toward them in an obedient way to God's truth. How does God want me to treat you? How does God call on me to treat my wife or my children or my neighbor or my enemy. That's the standard. And that's why God gave us the church, apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, to equip us, to give us that word, to give us that standard so that we know how to live, how to do those things, how to love. And love is giving someone what they need, not necessarily what they want. And so God's law is what is good for us, what's good for the church, what's good for society. It is what we need. A few passages, 2 John 4, 6. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady... Not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Truth, right? This is the commandment that you've heard from the beginning, and you should walk in it. Live in it. John 15.10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, Jesus said just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. 
1 John 5, 2-3, By this we know that we love the children of God. Okay, what's the test? How do we know we're loving? We're to grow up in love, right? How do we know? When we love God and keep His commandments. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. And so the goal here, according to our text this morning, is to grow up in all things. So if we speak the truth in love, that will lead to our growing up into all things into Him who is the head, Christ. The church is the pillar and ground of truth because she's been given the truth. The officers of the church are there to deliver the truth, 16 ounces to the pound, without addition or subtraction. As Paul declares in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. Because so many don't know the truth, they can't stand on the truth, and they are tossed by every wind of doctrine. This week, David sent me an article by Jeff Semino from National Review titled, The Anglican Church is Forsaking Tradition and Moral Truth. Here's an excerpt. The Church of England recently held a synod, that's a a council, to discuss, among other issues, the place of transgender individuals in the church. The synod voted in favor of a motion to, quote, consider whether some nationally commended liturgical materials might be prepared to mark a person's gender transition, end quote. One priest implied that this liturgical celebration could be similar to a baptism so that the transgender individual could re-enter the church in accordance with their post-transition identity. Progressivism, moreover, doesn't build upon Christian churches, but renders them lifeless. As Rod Dreyer has noted, quote, liberalizing on sexuality has done nothing to arrest the decline of liberal churches, end quote. Nevertheless, the Anglican Church has decided to stop speaking truth to the fickle moral uh, fancies of modern progressivism in favor of merely conforming to them. The church is in the shape she's in today because the truth of God's word has been diminished, undermined, and denied. This is an ancient problem, though, and we're going to have to constantly guard against it. Thus Jude, Jude wrote this, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered, uh, once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't a new problem. And Paul said to the Roman church, 
But God, be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And to Timothy, hold fast to the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And Paul reminds the Galatians, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, let me just truncate this or summarize it. The central thing. The Word of God is the absolute, ultimate authority and standard for the church. It is the job of the church to declare it, all of it, the whole counsel of God, without reservation, without embarrassment, without dancing an exegetical jig around things that we find uncomfortable, without trying to accommodate the world. We are the lighthouse. It doesn't move. It's the sure thing. It's the everlasting thing. It is the living thing. It is the perfect thing. And therefore, that's where we plant our feet, personally and corporately, as the church of God. You say, but the world doesn't like it. And we get made fun of. Of course you do. The world doesn't, not only doesn't like it, it hates it. It views it as too restrictive and too binding. And that's the whole problem with sin is we don't want God telling us what to do. And if you don't want God telling you what to do, the church is not the place for you. Go somewhere and do your own thing and, and, and see how that works out. This is the place for those who said, I died to myself. That wasn't working so well. I came here to be a new kind of person, a new creature in Christ, a follower of God and His Word, to build a marriage and a family and to raise children and to to live in such a way that is separate and set apart and holy, who follows Jesus, even when it's hard. Maturity is seen in the possession of truth with precision and then used for the good of others, which is love. <coughs> the selfless application of truth to ourselves and one another. A truth held in the intellect only is useless. And frankly, it really isn't even truth. We have an example of this when Jesus rebukes the Sadducees, who remember would have been able to quote the Bible as well as anyone. And he says to them, when they're trying to trap Jesus, Jesus says, you are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. We have been put in the church to help one another grow up. We need to grow in truth so that we can love one another by speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.16 The last part of our text for today. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part, that's you and me, does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. In other words, we're not just here 
to be nice to one another, though I'm grateful that you're nice to me and I like nice people, but that's not why we're here. We're not just here to sing together and eat together and play together. Somebody made the comment here recently that they came to church to see their friends. Well, I'm glad you have friends to come and see at church, but that's not the reason we come to church. We come here to be transformed, to be changed, to grow, to mature, to worship, to get equipped so that we can serve, so that we can love. That's why we're here. You see, we're actually here to speak the truth into one another's lives. To to disciple one another. To counsel one another. To give counsel on marriages and children and life. Whatever. That's not just my job. That's your job. We're to be doing that with one another. Speaking to one another. To comfort one another. With what? The truth. The Word of God. To rebuke and reprove one another. Yes, it is your place. If you see a brother or sister in sin, it is your place to go to them in love. And with the truth. And say, I love you but I'm, and I'm concerned about you because I see such and such. Let's, can I pray with you? Can we talk about it? You say, oh, I couldn't do that. They might be mad at me. Then you're loving the wrong thing. You're not loving them. You're loving yourself. And you're not really loving yourself. How about to exhort one another? How about, in other words, to use the truth, the words of the Bible, to help and to love one another? That's how you do your part And now that's how then that is translated into causing the growth of the body and the edifying of itself in love. And what did Jesus say? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples because you love one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the apostles and prophets, for all the faithful evangelists and pastors and teachers and for all the faithful Christians who through the ages have guarded the deposit of your life-giving word. And thank you for delivering it to us. Help us to perceive the value of that which we have been given and to make use of this treasure. May May we be found speaking the truth in love to one another as we fulfill our calling in the body of Christ. And may we participate in and see the church edified and mature. Help each of us as we leave this place to earnestly apply your truth so that we might love our spouses and children and parents and neighbors. Lord, you know and we know that some of them are very hard to love. But we remember that we too are hard to love. And yet you have loved us and given yourself for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua 22.5 says... But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul.
John Calvin wrote and said, The sum of the law is this, that we may worship God with true faith and a pure conscience, and that we may love one another. Whoever turns aside from this corrupts the law of God by twisting it into a different purpose. We're God's people, which means, by the way, that we're each other's people. You're my people. We belong to each other. That can be a little scary. Every broken one of us has been placed here to minister to one another, to love one another, to serve one another. Every one of us has been placed here because we need to be ministered to, because we need to be loved. This is our family, and like our other families, I hope you're not offended by this, but we are full of oddities that can make us uncomfortable. Just go to your next family reunion and look around. Yep, that's your family. Look around here. This is your family. All of them. Not part. You don't get to pick and choose. This is your family. But you see, God apparently wants us to be uncomfortable so that we can learn how to swallow our arrogance and pride and humble ourselves before him and love the unlovable because he loved us when we were unlovable. You can't do that without risk and you can't do that without cost. Just ask Jesus. So today, as you eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus, your Savior, who gave himself for you, I ask you now to give yourself to him, which will mean doing your share, which causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer and our Mediator, without whom we have no standing with you. For his sake alone, we can stand in your presence. We can know the assurance of your pardon and the pleasure of your countenance. As you have instructed us, we cast all our cares upon you, for you care for us. And now, O Lord, as we go forth from this place, having met with you, and having again worshipped in the assembly of your people, we delight and rejoice in your presence, and we also pray that your grace will now be evident in us, so that we might glorify you and serve you acceptably with reverence and fear. Perfect in us that which is lacking. Increase our faith, establish our hope, kindle our love. You have given grace to the humble, and you never fail those who fear you. Help us, Lord, to speak the truth in love, and to do our part in the edifying of the body of Christ. Send us now to our homes to live out what we've heard today. Bless our fellowship, our rest, and our meal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.